0: I'm Mike Ward and welcome to Conversations in Healthcare, a video series brought to you by DRG, part of Clarivate. This episode is one of a number that we're recording alongside on Helix, a digital conference that is hosted by OneNucleus. In line with this, I'm delighted to be joined by Bob Coughlin, who is able to provide insights from what is unarguably the the world's number one biopharma hotspot. Bob is president and CEO of the Massachusetts Biotechnology Council, or better known as MassBio, um, and it's a not-for-profit organization with more than 1,300 members that was founded in 1985. MassBio's stated mission is to maintain and advance Massachusetts' preeminent position in the, the life sciences world, add value to the healthcare system, and
1: improve
0: patient lives. Bob, I, I hope you and uh, those you care about are keeping safe and well. And thank you so much for, for for joining me.
1: Hey, Mike. Thank you very much. We are safe and remain well, and we hope the same for you and yours. And thank you so much for having me here this morning.
0: Great, great. So, so um, the you know, let's talk about it. So how is COVID nineteen uh, you know affecting the work that MassBio does, and uh, and what does the organization actually had to do to you know, minimize that impact and, and stay true to its mission.
1: Well, Mike, it's it's amazing to see how much we've had to transform as an organization to meet the needs that our industry is facing as it battles COVID-19. Uh, right off the bat, we realize that, you know, typically we're an organization that convenes people. We always say we convene, we connect, and we catalyze. Well, how do you con- convene in a world a new world of social distancing and physical distancing. So we immediately had to pick up the paces as it relates to the virtual nature of what of what we do. And uh, we've created virtual forums, virtual town halls, uh, virtual policy talks. And I'm really proud of the team here at MassBio how we've been able to take our our programming and make that virtual. In fact, it's been very successful. We've seen more engagement due to this virtual nature, than we did prior when, prior when people had to come and attend in, pers- in person. We've also had to meet the needs of, of our member companies uh, and our partners in the healthcare uh, industry. When, in Massachusetts, back in early March, when we found that the healthcare organizations and the frontline healthcare workers weren't going to have appropriate amounts of PPE Uh, we quickly built out the Massachusetts life sciences emergency supply hub. And we were able to inventory all the PPE that our over 1300 member companies had in stock and make that available and donate it to our frontline healthcare workers. So that's something we're very proud of.
0: Okay. So you actually, you brought all those, uh, all those assets together to actually provide a uh, relief to, to to an immediate problem. Um, Governments across the the globe are providing unprecedented uh, levels of support, basically to, uh, I guess, shore up the the economies. In your conversations with politicians, because I know that's something that your mass bio will be doing. What have you been advocating for most?
1: You know, Mike, when you think about what the mission or what our role, MassBio's role really is, it's to ensure that government, academia, and industry are all working together to ensure that the climate here in Massachusetts is conducive to remaining uh, the best place in the world for innovation. In comes a crisis like this, it's even more important that academia, industry, and government communicate more. So we've stepped it up. The level of communication with not only the administration and Secretary Mary Lou Sutters, who's heading up the command center here in Massachusetts, but also the communication with the, the House leadership and the Senate leadership has been uh, exponentially larger than it was in the past. And again, that's all happening virtually. But, you know, right off the bat, we needed to make sure that our industry remained essential. So when government has a voluntary or mandatory shutdown, we need to make sure that the life sciences industry was deemed essential so that we could continue to do research and development and innovation as it relates to diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines in the COVID 19 battle. But on top of that, think of all of the science that has been taking place over the last several des- decades, whether it's for cystic fibrosis or ALS or Alzheimer's or Duchenne muscular dystrophy. There's so much science that was going on that we needed to make sure that that science would stay active, alive, and continue to move forward. So we were able to ensure that. R and d employees were deemed essential right off the bat so that our industry did not face a major setback
0: so and you know to enable that to happen you know, what, 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 have, what have your member companies actually had to do to you know, have those have those uh, employees you know work in, in, in a safe environment
1: yeah well obviously everything. That the most important thing is safety first. So once we've deemed the life science industry was, uh, was coined as essential, that didn't mean that we were going to send everyone to work, right? The only people that we've sent to work over the past 12 weeks uh, uh, or so has been the folks that are essential to the research and development. Folks that have supporting roles or HR roles or business roles, we've con- continued to promote telecommuting and working from home. And it's amazing to see how effective uh, that that has been. And, you know, from a uh, an essential standpoint, government here in Massachusetts, they realize not only is this industry important to Uh, our economy, but it's so much more important to patients of the world. So we immediately worked with the state, not only to establish best practices for our workers, but just for, for our industry. We've also shared that not with, we've shared not only with life science clusters from around uh, the United States and around the world, but we've also shared it with other industries. And by nature of our lab workers They already have an understanding of how to utilize PPE. You know, we have a lot of clean rooms. We have clean manufacturing sites. They realize the importance of, you know, uh, of of sanitation and infection control. So, I mean, we just immediately had to come up with best practice. We've gone to shifts, rules as it relates to hand washing and PPE, et cetera. And all of that information is available on the COVID-19 resource page at MassBio.org.
0: Okay, so that's something that your organisation, that those are resources that are available, not only to the life sciences industry, but actually anybody else who would also like to... um take
1: a look absolutely not all of it applies to standard offices we might go a little bit further because of you know uh the clean rooms and labs etc but yeah we provide that for we've worked closely with the commonwealth of massachusetts to make sure that their back to work strategy included all of the things that we were able to learn uh since this pandemic began
0: So, uh, I mean, we all know that, you know, Massachusetts is this very, very fertile ecosystem for, for, for the life sciences where you've got all the, almost everything that you need uh, pretty close at hand. Supply chains uh, and sort of disruption to supply chains has been a big, big issue for a lot of the life industry uh, companies around uh, the, the life sciences companies around the, uh, the globe. What has been the sort of the impact in, in, in Massachusetts and, and what processes have, have you uh, seen put in place to again sort of minimize any disruption to that supply chain?
1: You, you know, Michael, I think one of the things that we've learned the most from this situation is that the supply chain here in the United States of America is broken. And the fact that, you know, we I, I've said it often over the last uh, several weeks, We were living in a world of just-in-time inventory. In other words, we could just order what we need for surgical masks or N95 masks or gloves or swabs or test kits. Well, when other parts of the world where we rely on to get that, uh, those materials and that equipment are down, they stop manufacturing there for a while. That affects us you know, several weeks, if not a couple of months later. And we found that our healthcare workers couldn't get the PPE. So our industry, because we had some stock, we donated all our stock to the hospitals. Now we're trying to replenish that stock. Well, is the stock out there? And I think we're going to go from in the, moving forward into the future from a, a just-in-time inventory to just-in-case inventory. And I think you're going to see companies Uh, uh, supply rooms remain more robust moving forward. What we're doing now and at MassBio, we run one of the biggest purchasing consortiums in the life sciences industry in the entire world. It was the first one founded back in 1985. So we're utilizing our purchasing power as an industry to make sure that our small to mid-sized companies have access to supply chain, whether it's for testing equipment, PPE, et cetera. And we're trying to backfill Currently, a lot of those supplies that were donated to the healthcare system. So, you know, we've partnered with Thermo Fisher Scientific uh, here at MassBio, and we're utilizing our relationships there to make sure that our companies can access PPE. We've also found that Massachusetts is one of the most resourceful manufacturing states in the United States of America. And I'm proud to say and proud to see. So many companies switching what they manufacture, because we do have a lot of manufacturing and in, in, in the apparel industry. Folks have been switching to make PPE, and we're going to try to source a lot of that, uh, those materials here locally, and it's working.
0: Right, great. So uh, we've seen you know, how rapidly um you know industry has responded to, to to COVID-19, uh, you know, particularly sort of you know life sciences companies. Are there any sort of of those innovative responses that have impressed you most?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've been extremely impressed, not only at our industry's level of engagement with folks in state and federal government. It's truly been amazing. I'm also amazed by the fact that here in Massachusetts, we have close to 80 member companies that are working on COVID-19 related science, whether it's in diagnostics, therapeutics, antivirals, et cetera, uh, and vaccines. To think that there's uh, currently eight companies are in clinical trials right now for vaccine, two of them are Massachusetts, from here in Massachusetts. That's pretty impressive for a little teeny state that's one-sixth the size of California. We're certainly fighting above our weight class as it relates to COVID-19. I'm also so impressed with all of these companies, how they're sharing information. In the days of old, everybody was competing to come up with that next novel therapy or that breakthrough therapy for a certain disease. Right now, everybody's working together because we never, I mean, let's face it, folks, the most important thing to the world's economy right now is developing a vaccine. So this isn't about money or a company that's gonna make money because once this thing's invented, everybody's gonna have to work together to manufacture it. Even if some other company invents it anyone who has manufacturing capability is going to have to do so to create the billions of doses required to eradicate or, or fight back this this virus. So I, I can't, you know, when you think in the past that it would take five to 15 years to invent uh, a, a vaccine or the several years to uh, invent a, an antiviral or a therapeutic. Look what we're doing right now, ladies and gentlemen. The, uh, the example of teamwork and collaboration has never been better. And I'm confident that this is going to bust through after this. And when we come out of the COVID-19 pandemic, we're going to be stronger as an industry, better as an industry, and people are going to appreciate what we do and the value that we add to the healthcare system.
0: So, so you think the, sort of the behaviors that you know, people have developed that sort of that, that collaborative uh, nature, you think that's actually something that is going to be sustainable post the pandemic, and might mean that you know the way that companies interact with each other will be different.
1: I, I really do because it's it's difficult to to work this well together and then leave it. And you know, the scientific community, scientists love to collaborate, right? It's usually the business folks. That would put up those guardrails. Well, I'm hoping that the big business folks don't put guardrails up that are so uh, rigid in the future, because there's a lot of good coming from this. In the past, people would always say drugs are too expensive. I would say drugs aren't too expensive; they're too expensive to invent. If we can do things faster, better, quicker, more efficient, the price to sell these therapies will be more. Uh, you know, it, it'll be more cost-effective to do it this way. Yeah.
0: So, so you, you mentioned about the you know, this. It's close collaboration and the fact you know the scientists have, have have done this um, you know, sort of historically. Even before the pandemic, there were uh, you know we saw the sort of the clamping down on sort of your immigration and you know foreign investments you know from some some le- leading uh, economies. Given the sort of the global nature of this industry, how concerned are you about this this phenomenon of You're looking inwards.
1: I'm very concerned about it. Um, You know, one of the reasons Massachusetts has become the best place in the world for the life sciences, Mike, is because we've recruited and attracted the best and brightest minds from all over the world. It doesn't matter where you're from. You know, I came to this industry because I currently have an 18 year old son with cystic fibrosis. I got involved with this industry uh, when he was born. 18 years ago and it was because I wanted to work I was actually in government at the time and I wanted to uh, enact policy that would help make Massachusetts a better place for innovation so that the really smart people who were working in biotech at the time could invent a therapy for my own child fast forward 18 years and 18 years and over 10 billion dollars my son just late last year in November took his first dose of a drug that's saving his life so That didn't happen because of people from Boston and Massachusetts. It happened because really bright people from all over the world were working to solve that unmet medical need that was so personal to me. So I just hope, and you can rest assured that MassBio is gonna continue to do everything we can to ensure that our federal delegation down in Washington DC is gonna uh, do everything they can to make sure that the best and brightest from all over the world can continue to be here. They're all welcome in Massachusetts, everybody is.
0: Yeah, sure. And um, I mean, it's interesting you're sort of saying about you know, sort of the cystic fibrosis um, uh, you know, experience uh, with your son and and you know, what the industry has done for that. In the in, in my introduction, I mentioned that you know one of the key missions of MassBio was to improve patient lives. Yeah. Um, I was wondering what do you think companies need to do uh, beyond you know developing sort of life saving or life enhancing treatments to be more patient centric
1: you know i've learned a lot of that from my involvement with the cystic fibrosis community and i think that's a great question thank you for asking it because not only is this industry we shouldn't just be here to create drugs and therapies in a vacuum, we should be here to be engaged and truly partner with the disease community. And over the past decade, you've seen that happen. You know, companies like Vertex are all in for CF with the cystic fibrosis community. You look at what all of these companies are doing, you know, folks that are working in the Alzheimer's space or the Duchenne muscular dystrophy space or the ALS space. They shouldn't just be going to the lab every day to try to develop that drug. They should be embedded in part of the community so they truly understand what the patients are experiencing. You know, uh, I'm so excited to see how companies, we call it here at uh, MassBio, patient-driven. A, everything that we do is hashtag patient driven. If it isn't patient driven, we shouldn't be doing it. And more and more companies are getting involved with disease foundations and help in, in partnering with the patients so that they can be involved with clinical trial designs. What should the right endpoints be? Talk to the patients and find out what their challenges are. And we need to continue to do that.
0: Yeah. And and also uh, so the relationship of, of companies with academia, which is obviously a uh, an important source of of, of innovation, um, but also the people who you know often are are running the clinical trials. What what can companies do to you know, foster more of that uh, relationship? It,
1: it, it's a great point, and that's I mean it. it go, the same goes for government, academia, and industry. Let's bust down the silos. Let's all work together. The life sciences industry isn't just the traditional life science companies. If we're gonna truly be better at what we do. And, and think about it. The most difficult thing in the world is to invent a, a therapy. And in some cases, we're not inventing just therapies. We're inventing uh, breakthrough treatments and, and cures. I mean, with, with, with gene therapy, these are cures to diseases. I was afraid to use the cure word 12 years ago, because we were setting false expectations. So, you know, the closer that we work with academia and the academic medical centers, the the more science is going to get turned into companies. I mean, you can do great science in the academic medical centers, but if it isn't turned into a company and gets through the clinical trial process, it's never going to be a therapy that treats a patient or cures a patient. So, let's continue that dialogue and I think One of the things that sets us apart from other parts of the U.S. and other parts of the world is, you know, I can walk. I'm in my office right now in Kendall Square in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I can walk to five of the top six NIH funded hospitals in the U.S. Right here. I can walk to them. So that collaboration is key.
0: Right. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, one of the other things that's key as well, though, is access to capital, Um, you know, developing um, these these uh, these treatments, etc. We know is extraordinarily expensive, um, given the fact that with the pandemic, the, sort of the, the markets are uh, very very volatile. There's a, there's a lot of uncertainty. What has been the sort of the experience of of biotech companies and their ability to to, to raise money?
1: Yeah, I was obviously. You know, and I, I, w- I came to the biotech industry on September 1st. I left government and came to MassBio on September 1st, 2007. So I lived through seven, eight, nine, and 10 when Wall Street crashed. And we were able to grow here in Massachusetts because we changed the model. We moved towards external innovation. We were able to recruit big pharma companies here to partner with the small biotechs so that they could actually continue to, to advance science when the Wall Street and the, and the public markets went away. I was very scared when this all started, but quite frankly, we've done pretty well because Q1, if you look at January, February, March, we raised in our market a record amount of venture capital dollars, the highest ever in the history of the industry. So if you look at the gas in the tank approach, You look at the venture capital dollars that came in for small biotechs. You look at the strength of the IPO market and even continued. We've had four companies have IPO since this pandemic has started. So public dollars are coming in and the big pharma companies are financially in very good shape to continue to do deals. So the only companies that have been extremely challenged right now because 80% of our membership are small companies that don't have a product to market yet. They're used to not making money. They raise capital and it takes several years to move uh, the product down the field, so to speak. So we've had only a small handful of companies that were in the middle of a capital raise when this happened and social distancing came and people said, geez, we're going to have to hold off a month or two, but we've been able to work with those companies to keep them going. So the amount of casualties that, we've faced here uh, from a company standpoint has been a lot lower than I anticipated. And I'm very grateful for that.
0: Right. Okay. So Bob, this is, this is uh, very, very interesting. Uh, as a final question. So it gives you an opportunity just to reinforce maybe some of the points you, you, you you've made. You know, what lessons do you think that we've all learned from this you know, very limited, but very, very intense uh, um, time. So what what should industry, politicians, the research community do to sort of manage life in a post-pandemic world?
1: You know, Mike, I'll get a little personal here. And, you know, obviously I left government to come on board here at industry years ago because the MassBio board was looking for somebody who understood policy, the intersection of policy and innovation. And I learned that as a dad of a kid that wasn't supposed to live very long. Okay. And when I look at over the last, especially four years of my career here at MassBio, it's been extremely frustrating because it's been a big part of my job is to been to convince the public and more so policy leaders and elected officials as to the value that our industry brings to the healthcare system, and in time and time again, it was like beating my head against the wall because bad actors would pop up and people like Martin Scarelli would do really bad things for and and our our entire industry would get a get be tarnished because of individual uh, bad actors. but when I would know that the men and women every day that go to work in the cystic fibrosis space they were going to work to save my kid's life right and not only save his life but remove. Cost from the healthcare system, a new therapy keeps somebody out, one, it keeps them alive, but if it keeps them out of the hospital and it keeps them, gets them off of chronic therapies that they're on for life, these new therapies really can save the healthcare system money, even if they're very expensive upfront costs, they save money down the line. And it it was getting hotter and hotter and almost to the point where I didn't want to do this job anymore. Because I felt like I couldn't convince people the value that innovation brings to the healthcare system. And then all of a sudden this comes along and people would come to me and say, well, why, why does it take so long to invent a vaccine? Can't they just do it? And I'd be like, well, if it was quick, do you think it would have taken 18 years and over $10 billion for us to work on finding a medicine for my own kid? This is hard, tricky stuff, and and it was almost like every day we were wound up so tight because we knew that if there wasn 't a therapy for my kid, he couldn 't live a normal life, and he was going to die. he was going to be really sick and die he 's getting, he's getting sicker every day, and I almost feel like now and again, this is a horrible tragedy, and i don 't want anyone to ever think for a second that we 're trying to capitalize on this horrible tragedy, but I do know that this crisis has given everybody in the world a sense of realizing that their lives aren't going to get back to normal until there's a medicine, right? Till there's a vaccine and their lives are at risk because, I mean, only God knows if you get this thing, some people die, some people don't. And, and we need a vaccine. So it's almost like my son even said to me a few weeks ago, he goes, daddy goes, it's almost like my friends realize what it's like to feel like, like I've felt my entire life. And you know something, I hope that's something that will carry through after all of this is done because the men and women all over the world who go to work every single day to solve unmet medical need and do work for patients, they are the true heroes and they deserve to be treated that way and hopefully this crisis will open people's eyes to the fact that we need them.
0: Great, so Bob, that's a, that's a, a you know, fantastic point point. and thanks very much for, for taking the time to uh, talk to us today. Um, The insights that that you shared, uh, particularly the personal insights, I'm sure will be of great interest and and, and resonate with with, with our listeners. So um, thanks very much. So if you'd like to tune into future conversations, uh, follow our LinkedIn page where we'll be posting alerts to uh, episode releases. Uh, In closing, I'd I'd like to thank Bob again for for joining us and and thank all of our listeners for, for tuning in. So until next time, stay safe and healthy. I'm Mike Ward and I'll see you in the next episode.